Hello, and welcome to The VergeCast, the flagship podcast of TheVerge.biz, our new e-commerce website. All merch. All merch. Hey, that shirt that says emails, I want to tell you right now before we begin the show, if you go to the store.theverge.com, you can buy a shirt that just says the word emails on it. I think it is the shirt that 2017 needs more than anything. It's also Ross Miller's parting gift to me before he left to become the director of programming at Polygon. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It, Nobody go it. to theverge.biz. It's not a real site. <laughs> Please don't go to theverge.biz. But I don't care where you fall on the political spectrum. You can wear a shirt that says the word emails on it and be like a perfect ironic hipster. It doesn't matter. Left or right. It's a shirt for everybody. I it's a shirt that captures our moment. I can't believe we don't have theverge.biz. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, hi, I'm Neil. I'm here. Paul Miller's here in New York with me. Hello. Dieter's in San Francisco. Hello. Joining Dieter in San Francisco, the one and only Lauren Good. Hello. Fresh off her series concluding, now she's got time to join the whole show. Lauren, I'm how so you doing? I'm so excited. Yeah, it's I'm good. I'm great. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, and I was going to say that the alternative to the emails t-shirt would be a Slack t-shirt, since that's really what we only use. And um, But then we would just look like we were wearing a t-shirt promoting oh, Slack. Oh, tw so 20 years from now, the, an election will be thrown by the Russian government leaking Slack logs. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to happen. More like five. Yeah. yeah. It's coming for all of us. Um, anyway, so we have a Dent show. Dieter and Lauren actually on a little bit of a clock. They've got to run to an event tonight. And I'm just going to say this. The first thing we're going to talk about is super heavy. It's the Google memo, the guy getting fired, the whole thing. I promise you, our audience, we will argue about Consumer Reports ratings of Surface laptops and iPhone leaks and the essential. All that's going to come later in the show, in the second half of the show. Uh, the candy's coming, but I really want everybody to just listen to the first part of the show, this Google memo. We cover so many products that these companies make, and the way these companies are designed and run and operated is incredibly important, and I think it's incredibly important that we're aware of the massive, like, what's the word I'm looking for? The massive discrepancy in how men and women are employed in the tech industry, it's something that we care about very deeply. Um, Lauren actually has been covering it on her show, Too Embarrassed to Ask, for a while. Was it just the, a couple episodes ago you did this? Yeah, a couple episodes ago we taped a podcast with Joelle Emerson, who runs a firm uh, that's based in San Francisco that actually focuses on what she calls unconscious biases. And she works with companies to try to eliminate biases that exist in the workplace. And then we also spoke to a woman named Ninian Wang, who happens to be a CEO of an app called Evertune. You might have heard of it. Um, she's fantastic. Um, she's just this really unique person. But she's also of note because she recently was one of a number of women who spoke out against a prominent VC and said she was sexually harassed by him. So we had the two of them on our podcast a couple weeks ago and we talked about this. And this, of course, just preceded the Google stuff and now this has come up. Yeah. So, you know, we, we there's a lot of information, there's a lot of opinions, there's a lot of stuff out there. But the thing that you should, about the Google memo in particular, but the thing that you should know, just going into it, is that this is a long-running conversation that's happening in this industry. And it's uh, uh, just a, it's a it's a wave of change that is coming through the tech industry in particular, and a lot of the conversation, a lot of arguments made in this memo are super reflective of the same conversation that's happened in other industries in the past, and we'll get into that in a minute. But first, let's just talk about what happened here. There's an engineer at Google named James Demore. He wrote a memo. It's ten pages long. Gizmodo has it. Motherboard had it, um, and it 
basically argues, and there's a lot of argument about what he was trying to get at in the memo, but he basically argues that Google's diversity programs are not effective because they don't account for biological differences in men and women and what men and women want. He, I think he leans way too hard on biological differences to explain the gender gap inside of Google. A lot of people feel that way. This memo went, quote unquote, internally viral inside of Google. A lot of people inside of Google were sharing on it. Google's a huge company. It ultimately leaked. It leaked again. There was a lot of conversation inside of Google. Google's sort of head of diversity said, we need to look into this. Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, um, released a memo to the staff saying it is not acceptable to say that, you know, your coworkers' biological traits make them unsuited for their job, and the man was ultimately fired. He has now become... I think like, the quote was negative stereotypes, right? Negative stereotypes. Um, he has now become sort of a martyr. He's out there. He's wearing a T-shirt that says Gulag today on his new Twitter account. He's giving interviews where he says he feels shamed by Google's leadership. It's a big deal. I think it is currently the biggest story in the tech industry. We're, like, it's, it's a strange moment. We're in the lull before sort of fall hardware. But it's another sign of like what The Verge is to like the thesis of The Verge is that technology and culture influence each other. And this is just another one of those moments when what is happening in one of the biggest, most influential companies in the world is exploding into the popular culture because it is yet another riff on this argument about men and women and their differences in the workplace in a way that appears, and I think this is important, this memo appears to be based in all this like very valid science, but you know, our science reporters, our enterprise reporters, there's a piece coming out, Sarah Jong and Rachel Becker are working on a piece where they're actually diving into the science of his arguments and the nature of how those arguments play into the culture and history of Silicon Valley. And what they're finding basically is the science doesn't hold up. So like that's the long and short of it, right? The guy wrote the memo, the memo went, internally viral, people at Google freaked out um, for a variety of reasons. Eventually Google had to fire him because it kind of, it creates a really negative environment for women to work inside of Google when, you know, uh, this guy does peer reviews. There's a lawsuit against Google right now about the wage gap for men and women inside of Google, a class action lawsuit. If you have engineers doing peer reviews saying, well, biology tells me you're not suited to this job, you actually create an enormous liability to yourself. Does that sound about right, Dieter, Lauren? Yeah, I, uh, I think that about sums it up. <clears throat> the, um, the, the, I guess the, the thing, I don't know, under that's under all of this that's so fascinating. Um, I don't know, if fascinating is the right word. Is I, I actually this point was made over on uh, Vox.com's Weeds podcast. If I had just come across this blog post, uh, like this thing as a blog post somewhere on the web, I would have been like, oh, well, there's that, and then I would have moved on with my life, but the 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 fact that it came out of, from a Google engineer who and that it spread internally inside Google's internal social networks both just the doc getting shared around but also uh, you know they've got their like internal meme social network and their internal G plus social network that it that it like bounced around inside that like social community and inside you know the the community of Google before like a pinball flying out uh, onto the, the the wider web. Um, and then the interactions between him and Google now and the interactions of uh, all, all the women at Google that have spoken about this, um, 
that to me is like the thing that makes this story the story of the moment is it's not just about the you know particular ideas that James Demore is espousing and whether or not they fit in Silicon Valley. It is the way that the context in which he shared them inside Google and the tools within Google that Google uses to talk to itself supercharged that memo to a place where it has become like the biggest story. It was going around for like a month inside, right? Yeah, supposedly uh, Demore wrote this actually a little bit a little while ago, and he wrote it after he had done some type of unconscious bias training that you know seemed to have affected him in some way, and at least partly inspired this. And you know the the sort of reactions to it came when the document went viral and when it hit the public, and people started to become aware of its existence outside of the groups it was originally shared with. And I think it's hard to imagine, I guess. You know, a, a world and we're in, that we're, we live in today, in an internet-based world, um, where this kind of thing doesn't go viral or doesn't trigger some sort of reaction. Uh, you know, among the people who are discussing this exact kind of thing in Silicon Valley. I mean, to your point earlier, Nilai, about you know how technology and culture are so intertwined. I think it is striking a nerve because we are starting to see as as technology gets more and more advanced. Um, you know, we look at these things as kind of these entities separate from people. You know, we use technology and technology is created, but it's easy enough to say, it's easy enough to remove the human element from it. But the fact of the matter is people who are working on coding, who are working on AI, um, who are working on self-driving cars, who are working on, uh, you know, filters for facial recognition apps or whatever it might be are human beings. They're human beings. And so we all have these kind of unconscious biases that we may bring into what we are working on. And there are concerns, I think, in the coding world about when you have these biases that sort of exist, like what is being sort of built into the technologies we all use. Yeah, I think to me that it, there's a lot of arguments in this memo. There's one in particular that Paul and I were discussing kind of at length um, where his argument is, and I hesitate to even say because I disagree with it so thoroughly, but his argument is uh, there are personality traits between men and women. On average, men like things and women like people. And that means there's a, and we can bring women into coding, but there's a limit to how people oriented engineering can be. And we shouldn't lie to ourselves that, you know, um, that pe women are going to like it. And some of our camps to like help women code are deceiving students and I just read that and to me it's just such a mistake right it's a mistake of we're going to take these broad population level studies which is what they are some of them are very old and I think Rachel pointed out to me that none of the studies he cites um, are newer than 2011 or so so some of them are old some of them have been disagreed with you know it's Scientific research, so there's a lot of studies that point, you can cherry pick whatever study you want, but we're going to take these old studies that talk about huge trends, and then we're going to bring them into our organization of that isn't a population-sized organization, and then we're going to say, we can judge how, we can judge your individual, individual aptitude towards a role based on these huge trends. And I think that, that to me is the exact mistake that he's trying to correct, right? Like, we're not going to, we're going to treat people as individuals is what he's arguing. But then his arguments are, but I can look at population level data 
and make some judgment about you without actually knowing you or knowing your skill. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest issues I see with this is just, it, listen, if you were to look at Dieter and I sitting in this room right now in San Francisco taping the Vergecast and ask, are there biological differences between the two of us? Of course there are, you know, I'm a female and he's a male, and there are other things that our science report that we're going to be putting out shortly, they're going to get into. But to talk about capabilities... Uh, in that kind of way, I think uh, in the memo, it was, it was just incredibly polarizing. Yeah, and I, I, to me, I think the big mistake here is understanding what all of the roles inside of Google are and or any big company and being able to make blanket assertions about capability, fitness. And I think there's a lot of argument. The entire memo is couched in a lot of sort of I believe in diversity, but we're doing it all wrong. And then it immediately goes to, I can use a population level trait to, to determine how well suited or what the numbers will eventually be. When you could actually mm -hmm. build an organization of you know, all women that run a tech company, and they might be just as productive. And then if you're Google, there's as much social science that, out there that says, diverse companies are more productive and have higher revenue, right? Just like, kind of one-to-one -one. and there's been a ton of research in there too so if you're google of course you want to be more productive and higher revenue so of course you're going to do some work on diversity and so i think all of that this is just a bubble and i think the bubble is related to the myth of like what engineering is it's related to the myth of like the lone hacker in a garage who has to carry forward a vision and that myth is just not true in like a variety of ways um so like medicine uh nearly 50% of med school graduates are women. Medicine is a competitive, high-stress, scientific, technical job. Uh, when I graduated law school, which is not <laughs> a very complicated job, but it's still a high-stress professional job, 50% uh, of my graduating class in law school is women. Like, there are other fields of comparative competitiveness where these issues have not come up in the same way as software engineering and tech, and I think this memo just doesn't recognize that at all like it's it's this thing that i see all the time where people think they have an idea and they thought they they think the they've, they're having the idea for the first time but there's an enormous body of academics and research and scholarship and work that actually is far ahead of where they are yeah the the other like big counter example that people have been citing is if you if you look at uh the the gender parity in computer programming uh, it's actually pretty close, uh, and there might even be more women than men up until the mid '80s, and then uh, then it becomes a huge gap. And so there's a lot of you know what happened in the mid '80s that caused that gap, and it seems unlikely that there was a huge biolo biological shift in our population since like 1985. It seems much more likely that there are a bunch of like cultural things that happened that disincentivized women to get into the field. It's also worth noting, too, that part of the memo is, um, you know, there seems to be a lot of, I don't know if anger is the right word, but, um, you know, just sort of angst expressed at Google and the way that Google is doing things, too. Like, some of these arguments are kind of couched in this idea of, like, well, there are people here who don't share these views and are feeling isolated, and we feel isolated because we can't express them freely. So there is a legitimate argument to be made for people who are in any type of work environment who feel like, listen, I share an opinion that is not the same as the majority or a large portion of my colleagues, and I feel like it's an unsafe environment in which I can express them. 
And that's fine. But when your ideas or the things you are sharing sort of um, are contain a certain level of toxicity or create this amount of chaos, um, then I think that, you know, there there are going to be some some kind of repercussions. Yeah. And I, I want to come back to this. And Liz Lapato, our science editor, pointed this out to me today as well. Google is facing a class action lawsuit about the wage gap between men and women at their company. They have not released a bunch of data um, to the government about this stuff, and they're fighting this lawsuit. Uh, and they also run like performance reviews, like peer performance reviews. So now you've got a, a person who is saying things that make women feel like they, he, won't, he won't judge them correctly. They definitely feel like they can't put people on a team with him because he has created this polarizing environment around himself. And they, they're giving their, the people who are suing them evidence that they have people on their staff who are doing peer reviews, which ultimately lead to wages and salaries, who feel this way. So now there's evidence inside the company uh, that wages might be affected by attitudes towards gender. That is a disaster for, like losing that lawsuit's a disaster for Google. So it is like, there's the sort of philosophical argument about differences between men and women. There's the cultural argument about whether the company should be diverse, which I personally think that they should be. I think a lot of us think they should be. And then there's just like the cynical fucking legal argument of how do we reduce our liability? And I think all of those add up to this dude being fired. And honestly, if you are if you <laughs> if you are as smart as reading this memo indicates that this guy thinks he is, you should know that before you start distributing a memo like this. And I think there's probably other ways to communicate this information. How how, how would you communicate this? Well, look, I mean, I, I think if what you're saying in Google's diversity programs are not doing great, right? Like they just released some more public data, and they haven't like made some huge shift in their demographics. So like if what you're saying is our diversity programs aren't working and I have some ideas why, then I there, there's probably a more appropriate way to communicate that inside of your company than releasing this memo at, like that you wrote somewhat angrily after attending an unconscious bias workshop. And we actually have the slides. Sarah Jong uh, got those slides that you can go look at what the workshop that he took looked like. And if you work at any sort of medium to big size company, they... They're pretty anodyne. We have unconscious bias trainings at Vox Media that look just like this, and they're not. It, they're not. They're. It's basically like just be nice to each other and like stop, stop. Yeah, they're not stop, provocative. Yeah, like stop, stop relying on stereotypes when you make judgments about your peers. It's like not a mm -hmm. difficult thing to communicate to your workforce. I think the interesting thing now is not only to see how Google continues to react, sort of from a senior management level. Um, and of course, how other companies in the Valley sort of handle similar situations, because this is not an isolated, I mean, this particular instance of the memo is, is a pretty specific, but the overall diversity problems and, and the struggles people have with them, um, that's like very much a, you know, widespread. But I think seeing how other Googlers are reacting internally, I mean, I, I'm just very curious. It seems as though this this guy James Demore is receiving a certain amount of support from people that he used to work with uh, at Google and of course outside of Google um, and then it seems like there are people who of course are very who are very upset by this memo and upset by some of the reactions that they're observing um, so it's like it's just it's it's a it's a really interesting 
thing to observe and to report on. Yeah. So, Lauren, do the zoom out for us. So, obviously, you know, you've had these conversations on your podcast. You've talked to people about it. What what's sort of the broader view right now in the industry? Is there is it getting better? Are people thinking about it more? There have been a, a bunch of scandals of VCs now getting forced out of their their funds. What's your kind of bigger take? The broader view is that it is not good. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> I mean, it's true. In Silicon Valley in general, uh, you look at some of the larger companies, and in recent years, they have started to release these annual diversity reports. And every so often, you do see sort of a 1% or 2% increase in some area that they've been focusing on, whether it's been hiring um, in a more gender-diverse way, whether it's been hiring more people of color, um, all different, you know, whether it's creating better work environments for parents or working moms or whatever it might be. Um, but even, I mean, there are a couple ways to look at that, which is, okay, if a multi-thousand person company manages to make a one to 2% increase in their workforce in a certain area that they've been focused on, that's actually pretty significant from a numbers perspective. But when you look at it from a percentage increase, it's actually kind of dismal and you're wondering why it's not happening more quickly. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, there is data that show that when you start to uh, diversify your workforce, that it can lead to better product, diversity of ideas, um, women can be excellent leaders. I mean, there are all sorts of good things that can come out of doing this. So in general right now, Silicon Valley is under a bit of a microscope and people are looking at it and saying like, well, why is it so white male or, you know, Asian males? Like why why are there certain groups that just really kind of that are, are standing out in the workforce in terms of their numbers? Um, and, um, you know, there no one really has the solve. And then on sort of this, this gender uh, level, there are like a couple of different things going on here. I mean, there's uh, a lack of representation of women in certain types of roles. And then there are issues of sexism, which is kind of let's go to the next level of like what's really going on with these interactions. And then there's the next level of sexual harassment. And in the case that we saw a few weeks ago, um, which is when a bunch of women came out against a VC and said like, hey, we were like, very explicitly sexually harassed by this guy and he ended up getting fired from his VC firm and the VC firm is actually just kind of like floundering now. So, um, so like, but the thing to think about, and this is actually based on what Joel Emerson said on our Too Embarrassed podcast, is that all of these things are in some way interrelated. You know, you can look at them as these kind of distinct issues, but, um, you know, when there is a lack of representation of one type of group, then that group may be more likely to be discriminated against because they don't have the same kind of representation. And then when that happens, it can escalate to the next level, which is when someone feels sexually harassed or discriminated against, they're not actually reporting it or they don't know where to go and that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, it's like it's just a real problem in general right now in the Valley. Yeah, it seems like an ongoing issue that is just going to... We assign this story about this, <clears throat> about this memo... Um, and one of the reactions that we got from our newsroom when we were talking about it was, well, isn't this going to be over? And I was like, this story is forever, right? It's this memo or it's another memo or it's another incident. But this question right now is there's so much money in the Valley. There's so much emphasis on what these companies do to be the innovation engine of our country, to lead the world, to change the world, which is something they always claim that they're doing, that if you don't pay attention to this, if they don't work on it, then what they're going to actually they're going to get worse in a way that is significantly detrimental to the world. And they employ so many people who think they are so special because they're part of it. 
that their reaction to being told, hey, you built these companies wrong or you designed this system wrong, and a lot of them, their job is to design systems, they're going to react very, very negatively. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. But it, it also feels like, you know, these things happen in inflection points and this moment for better or worse in Trump's America is one of those big cultural inflection points when people are going to start talking about it differently. And I, what I hope that we can accomplish in our coverage is make sure that we're providing coverage that both sides are reading and agreeing with and disagreeing with, but they see like, this is an inflection point. We have to start talking about this differently now, because if we keep talking about it the same way, the problems just metastasize. Well, and the way that we're talking about it, um, or the way that we've historically talked about it, and the way that a lot of the conversation around this memo has played out is following a lot of very unhelpful patterns that we've seen before. Uh, it's um, free speech versus like actually talking about the ideas versus actually arguing about the content of those ideas. And one, like if like we've spent a very long time here talking about the actual, you know, quality of the science and of the content of the memo. Um, but the the other side that's more supportive of him um, is talking about whether or not he has the right to share these ideas in the first place and whether or not Google has a responsibility to give him a platform within and outside the company to share those ideas. Um, and those are two very different questions. And in the middle of those two questions is what does, you know, a society or a company like Google decide when it wants to give people a voice and how it like balances that with diversity and balances that with a diverse set of viewpoints, many of which you're going to disagree with. Um, and everybody's sort of weighing in, but then <laughs> the, the complicated part on top of that, as Neil, I was, was pointing out earlier is like Google isn't America. Google is a corporation <laughs> that has to follow like laws. And so as a corporate person, it, it is slightly constrained in the way that it is going to act and operate. Um, and so some of these like, you know, free speech replies about this drama uh, don't necessarily take that into account or are trying to hold Google to a different standard than Google could actually live up to. Um, and it just, it's, it gets so messy so fast that trying to just ensure that like you're talking about one thing and you're, if you're having a debate about it, you're having a debate about that thing and that doesn't slip into some other broader debate or some other culture war debate is very, very difficult. And uh, it would be nice if we maybe this time could could do a little bit better job of it than we have in the past. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I also want to point out too, you mentioned systems before and this idea of like people in technology who often work on sort of fixing systems or evaluating systems. One of the things that Ninian Wang said on the Too Embarrassed podcast a couple weeks ago, and I'll, I'll say this, her point of view is largely sort of focused on the VC world because her experience as a founder raising capital has been dealing with VCs and dealing with her sexual harassment from them um, or from one in particular is, you know, if you were a company, a tech company right now, uh, putting out a new product or dealing with a product and there were bugs or flaws you would go through some pretty rigorous systems testing to figure out what was wrong with it. You would talk to users, you would figure out where the bugs were, you would figure out like where they're originating from. Um, same as if you were a VC and you were backing a product that was experiencing issues you know, at launch or after launch, you would say, okay, well, we need to go and we need to talk to the users and we need to figure out what's wrong here. It's interesting that 
in instances where women are feeling discriminated against or underrepresented in tech, that there are a bunch of people sort of saying, well, we need to fix this problem, we need to fix this problem, but no one's actually just taking the time to listen in some cases or talk <laughs> to the quote unquote users to figure out what's wrong to how to fix it. Um, there's just a lot of sort of blustering or, or memo writing or whatever it might be without actually evaluating the problem in, in that kind of organized way or a way that makes sense. And so if you were to look at this as a problem that Silicon Valley needs to solve, um, you know, the brain power is there. Silicon Valley is a really brilliant place, but people aren't, I don't think, treating this like, a, like the real problem that they should. Yeah, you know what struck me about this memo is you can, you can accept, if you wish, that men or women are different, and at the margin, they might have different skill sets. Like at the if the far end of the curves, you know, I don't know, men can drink water faster than women. I'm trying to think something really innocuous. Um, and I looked at a glass of water, so there we are. Uh, <laughs> but you have to assume perfection in society and perfection in the culture and perfection in how we're all raised before those marginal differences start to account for changes in like diversity and i think that is that is the thought that is not like those thoughts feel contradictory but they're not right like you can accept the curves are different you can accept skill sets are different that men on average are taller than women fine but you have to also assume before that stuff starts to weigh on the scale that the scale hasn't been totally weighted down by some other problem and i think everyone is refusing to acknowledge the existence of some other problem before jumping to, well, our biological difference explains how the scale is currently weighted. So, yeah, I mean, look, this story is going to be forever. We're going to be talking about it a lot. Um, I think we're going to be seeing a lot coming out of Google, which obviously wants to, you know, contain the story to build a diverse workforce. That's the thing they keep saying. I think there's going to be a lot of culture war back. Uh, our managing editor, TC Sodic today said it's only a matter of time before Trump tweets about this. And then something like another wave of fury occurs. So it's it's gonna be there. And I can I, I say something along those lines? Yeah, I, I feel like I, I realize Google is in a very hard position because you basically have an employee saying I disagree with the company I work for ideologically. Yeah. Um, but I feel like firing him and then realizing how many people in that company agreed with him mm-hmm. is. It's especially if if Google believes that anyone at that company who thinks like this is the problem that they're trying to fix. Yeah. How do they fix it now? Because how do you how do you communicate with the people that are still at the company who agree with James Damore? How do you convince them that you will talk it through and figure it out or or you do just plan to fire them? Like, what's the next step? to improve that situation. Yeah. This is a great point. I actually, I was listening to uh, a report on this this morning, and I, I have to, I think it was CBS was reporting it, that there was a survey done in the Blind app, and that um, I think it was pretty split 50-50 in terms of the respondents saying whether or not, and there were many, many respondents, whether or not they agreed with Google's decision to fire um, this this engineer and so um of course i'm like citing another source and <laughs> haven't you know done and done reporting on this on this 
report myself. Um, but it's and it's done in the blind app, which is like <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. But a lot of interesting stuff does come out of that. And and so you do have to wonder. It's kind of what I was getting at earlier. You do have to wonder about the employees who remain, who on some level supported what he had to say. Yeah, and I think you know Google can't just lose all those people tomorrow, right? Like that's also catastrophic to their business. But Sundar Pichai cut his vacation with his family short, flew back. He's got it all hands today at four. That process begins. Paul, I think that's a great question. I think we're going to see what Google does. I can't. We're gonna. I'm going to read this ad. I can't believe it is this ad right now. And then we're going to come back and talk about some gadgets. Are you ready for this ad? Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? <laughs> with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling calls or emails to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage your job candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, VergeCast listeners can post in ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Verge. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Verge. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Verge. Okay, we're back. And we're going to go immediately back into controversy. The deepest, most important controversy of our time, mm-hmm. which is that Consumer Reports pulled its recommendation of Microsoft Surface PCs because they did some survey of 90,000 computers and found that a quarter of Surface products uh, broke in two years. That's in comparison to like Apple, tw- 20% Lenovo, for HP, 10% for Apple, 16% for Samsung. Yeah. So here's the thing. I'm just going to put it out there. A couple days ago, we did the best laptop you can buy right now. Mm-hmm. Dieter, was it Dan Seifert picked the, the, the Surface laptop, the new Surface laptop that just came out in, in May? Yes. But um, to be clear... Um, these stories are not written in a vacuum, right? Like it's, it's Dan's judgment, but it's uh, my judgment. I, I edited him on this piece. And um, right now, at this moment, the best laptop to buy right now for most people, uh, MacBook Pros are not, um, not the greatest. Uh, and the MacBook Air is pretty old and the standard MacBook is um, still a little bit underpowered. And uh, so like, if you want the best thing for doing most things, um, this thing is basically a MacBook Air, but it runs Windows uh, with the, the screen that you want. Uh, and so that is that is how we came to the conclusion that we came to. Um, there are many, 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 many debates uh, about whether or not Windows is better than Mac, uh, whether or not uh, this thing um, being sealed up as tight as it is is problematic because of the battery, um, you know, and on and on and on. Um, so like that is, that is some of the backstory I could, I could keep going. Yeah. Uh, but I think, yeah, that's an, I mean, the, the point is right now, that's the one we picked. Of course, yep. consumer reports pulls this label. Our friend John Gruber, during fireball calls, like puts it up, like services break. Of course the verge just picked, this is the best laptop you can buy. But here's the point I will make. And I think it's important. They didn't actually measure the surface laptop, which is a new 
product in a different form factor. They measured products, I think, from 2013 to the beginning of 2017 before the laptop was put out, which includes mm -hmm. a huge array of previous Surface devices. And I think most importantly, and I think Tom is Tom Warren is poking into this right now, the Surface Book, the detachable hinge thing, had an enormous number of problems. That thing was messed up. That was, I kept on getting shocked by it. Yeah, it, kept, it was shocking people. I think in, uh, Microsoft had a bunch of problems integrating Skylake into that, the Intel Skylake processor into that. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they basically said it but didn't say it. And we tried to figure out if Skylake had a problem, and other manufacturers said, all Intel processors have this, these kinds of problems. We're used to it, and we mm -hmm. code against it in firmware. It was just like... And they had some Sur Surface Pro 4 problems as well. Yeah, I think those two products were not, were not as great as they could have been. Mm. But using that to judge the new one, I think, is really hard. So that's like... Well, especially because the new one, other than the Alcantara fabric, um, I don't know that they're doing anything that crazy or experimental inside that thing. Yeah. Right? Like, yes, it's very hard to take apart. Uh, you talk to iFixit, that, that is true. Um, and so it's very difficult to replace, but in terms of like components and weird, you know, screen hinges and, you know, crazy fan stuff and like all the rest, like it's a pretty bog standard laptop. Yeah. And I, t to me, it's just, it's a new thing, right? So like, should Consumer Reports pull the recommendation for the Galaxy S8 because the note blew up, like makes no sense. Right. right, especially looking at these historical trends. So, I don't know. We'll see. I think Consumer Reports does this with Apple all the time, where like ding Apple, and then everyone freaks out. Mm. And it feels like they might just be like trying to ding Microsoft to see if they get an equivalent freak out. Turns out they did, <laughs> but from the Apple people. So they're just they're finding new ways to troll the Apple community. Um, but we're looking into it. Uh, Tom is on the case. He's interested in their methodology. He's interested in what Microsoft has to say. So we'll flop on it. Okay. That, that's enough controversy for today. Like a big, meaningful controversy and then a silly controversy. Let's talk about firmware leaks and what we know about the iPhone. Yes. <laughs> this is all yes. anybody wants to talk about. We, we, yes. made, we made you eat your vegetables. We know some facts regarding <laughs> iPhone 8 home button area from Stratton Smith. <laughs> One, it resizes. Two, actually these are bullet points. They're not numbered, but I'm adding numbers. Indicator can be hidden. Yeah. No API to change color. Tab bars extend under. I'm so excited. Are you really? Yeah. There's so much that can be done in the land of home buttons. Hmm. You got that screen. It's a it's a home button. It could just it could just be it's contextual. Yeah. And and I always hated the thing that never clicked with me with Android like from day one was this idea. It's kind of like the right click, the hidden menu. That's contextual and it's a surprise. But if you have a a, a a contextual button that's visually changing to be whatever you need it to be, it could be it could be cool. Yeah. Also, seems like you can pay for stuff in third party apps. This is cool. You can do that right now. No, there's some something new about it. Hmm. Like I, like Uber has an Apple Pay integration. I use it all the time. Um. Square does. Um, I like the idea that you could automatically silence notifications just by looking at the phone. Yeah, how do you feel about this lack of touch ID, Lauren? Like, it seems like it's gone, and they're just going to use this face stuff. I think as long as they have figured out a way to make that more secure inherently, then I'm okay with it. But touch ID is pretty darn secure. Yeah. Um, 
but you know the way that Apple does security generally is they bake it into the chip uh, at the like very very sort of lowest level of the hardware that you could get to, and then it's just kind of activated by whatever authentication method is happening on the surface. Um, and so I imagine that if you know we get a we get away from Touch ID or something like that, and there really is some type of face or iris scanning or whatever it might be, that the real security is happening at the chip level anyway. Um, Zeter is like looking to weigh in here. No, I'm just like, it is a very, very, very big gamble. Um, unless this thing is as good as Touch ID, uh, both in terms of its security and in terms of its speed, uh, then that is going to be really a bad look. Um, I've, I've used the Galaxy S8. Uh, I would say the face unlock is uh, pretty darn good, but also pretty darn insecure. The iris scan is very secure, but very, very slow. And trying to reach up to hit the fingerprint sensor is a huge pain. Um, so they kind of threw three not great options at there, replacing the one really solid option in order to get a full screen thing. And if what Apple is doing is a compromise in terms of basically unlock speed and full security, I, I believe Lord is right that in terms of security, uh, in terms of at least like you know keeping the biometric data in the secure enclave, I'm sure that they've done the right thing there. Um, but I'm less sure that it will be, you know, easily Easier, spoofed, mm -hmm. right? Um, if uh, if someone makes a 3D model of my face by from a picture of me, will that work? Yes, right? someone... I hope it does because I'm definitely doing that. I mean, I, we're <laughs> assuming we're assuming that it will read depth and it won't just work off a picture the way that traditional face unlock can be can be spoofed. Um, but yeah, it um, it seems uh, a little bit scary, like to to take a step back. Uh, in terms of securing your phone yeah. uh, biometrically. Uh, and maybe that's fine. That's an okay compromise to make. But what they cannot do is if the interaction is confusing in terms of unlocking your phone, Yeah, like that's that's really bad. Yeah. Apple's already, like, it's already a little bit less clear now than it used to be about what happens when you hit that home button to unlock your phone, right? It's already a little bit, meh. Um, and if you're suddenly, like, trying to, like, position the phone or make the exact right gesture or, you know, make a duck face to, or whatever it is <laughs> that you have to do to unlock your phone. Yeah, like you're like, paying at the grocery store. Yeah. And like right now, it's actually pretty easy just to tap it if you're going to use Apple Pay or with Samsung Pay or whatever it might be. And yeah. then you enter in a PIN code or you use your fingerprint, whatever it is. It's like, it's all pretty simple stuff and right. everything is happening locally right at that point of sale terminal. But imagine if you tap and then it needs to authenticate and you have to hold it up to your face and you need to get into proper lighting um, because sometimes things like windows all low doesn't work that great in certain lighting like whatever it might be and then and then you're like oh, okay well that this just became a very awkward grocery store transaction <laughs> so those are all the risks but i said this I, I characterize this thing as a gamble not as a bad idea because the reward is if they get it right and it's secure and it's fast and it makes sense then everybody who's using the other biometric ways to unlock their phone and like hit the fingerprint sensor and blah, 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 blah. If the phone is just magically and invisibly securely unlocked when it's me and uh, not unlocked by anybody else and I don't have to think about it at all, they've taken a huge step forward and that's potentially really exciting. How do they know you're so, holding it? That's the, that's the thing mm -hmm. that gets me. Like the way, like the, 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 the gangs of, of kids with like square readers who like run up to you, take your phone, point at your face, and then charge you five hundred dollars? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm oh, sorry. Man. Like, oh uh, man, like I'm what, ready for that gang to exist because it's hilarious. Yeah. But like, how do they prevent that? Yeah, 
Wait, they they hold the they stake they take your phone. Here's my idea for a criminal <laughs> okay, enterprise. Okay, okay. okay. No, no. Explain. Here's what's gonna happen. We roam the streets no, no, at night with a square happen. reader. Right. Your four-year-old is going to want to play Candy Crush, but you're going to be asleep because it's Saturday morning and that goddamn kid wakes up at five o'clock no matter what. Wow, Dieter. And it's like it's like 7.30 and the kid wants to play Candy Crush and buy some extra whatever you buy in Candy Crush. Candy? And they're just going to pick it's up your phone, candy tiptoe into your room, point it at your snoring-ass sleeping face to unlock it, and then they're going to go buy them some jewels. No, but you're going to have your eyes closed because you're asleep. It's open. easier for them to do it with your like, thumb or something. Okay, let's leave right. these mm. devious children out of it. I'm saying... <laughs> street gang. I'm going to start a street gang. Yeah. We're going to get a square reader with NFC, right? and we're going to run up to people, the drunks leaving the club. Okay. And we're gonna grab their phone, right? And we're gonna point the phone at their face to unlock it, and then we're just gonna hold oh, it up. Oh, but it also works with the rear camera. Huh? According to according to, to according to Rambo on Twitter, it also works with the rear camera. So yeah, it doesn't even matter. I just got your phone. I point it at you, and then I charge you five hundred bucks, and I leave. And it was authenticated transaction, and I just charged you for like true. some good like Good Times Inc. So there's 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 an indication of, of <laughs> that's the name of my business. Multi biometric. Yeah. So are, are we 100% sure that there won't be no, a not at all. reader? I think what's really interesting right now at this moment is there's all these leaks out of the HomePod firmware. Like every day there's more. Mm. Um, and they're really interesting and fun to read. Feel bad for Apple. And then at the same time, there's like hardware leaks out of the supply chain that we can't really verify. Right. And so the hardware leaks don't have these sensors. And I think people are, they don't have a fingerprint sensor. And I think people are just assuming the hardware leaks are as accurate as the software leaks. Anyway, I think a lot of people are conflating the presumed validity of the leaked firmware with the pit, the mocks that are coming out, right? So you got these like weird hardware mocks from case makers, and you have this what seems obviously going to happen because of the firmware. I don't think we know what this hardware actually looks like yet. That's my read on What if the HomePod was just a giant troll of a product that was put out there into the universe to for people to develop code for it and then leak stuff to <laughs> um, rabid bloggers who have spent weeks endlessly speculating are you, are you saying apple's crowdsourcing the design of the next iphone yeah through the home pod they just have this home pod in the middle of their of their conference room tables every day now and they look at it and just go ha, 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 <laughs> and just love that we're all going crazy looking at all the x code that's fine it's like evil schiller is like full you think full that force. um you think that that tim cook's wake he after this you know leaked out that tim cook changed the wake word for his HomePod from Hey Siri to HomePod. <laughs> He's just like start screaming at it. I also say there's one more leak in the HomePod firmware that I'm tremendously excited about, which is a 4K Apple TV with HDR10 and Dolby Vision. There is literally no other product that can stream Dolby Vision right now, which is like way better HDR than HDR10. I'm gonna buy that thing so fast. It's the so thing I. that I, I want the most. No other product. I just than... got the firmware update on my Vizio P series that uses like web apps, but the TV was clearly not designed to run web apps, and so it's slow as hell. <laughs> um, so, no, like we're not using Google Cast to watch stuff because we want to look at the interface together, and right. so we just keep on defaulting back to the Apple TV. Um, here's my secret hope for that uh, 4K HDR Apple TV. Make a better remote, y'all. Yeah, please. That touchscreen remote, that touchpad remote is no good. I think HDR10 looks bad. My um. Uh, I have a Chromecast Ultra that does HDR10, and it just doesn't look good, like compared to Dolby Vision running off the app. And there's no, as, as I'm pretty sure, 
almost 100% sure there's no external device that runs Dolby Vision yet. No, like all the Rokus are HDR10. So your Amazon Dolby Vision box. is built into your TV. Yeah, the only way to get Dolby Vision is have it built into your TV from the jump. So I'm I'm excited about an external box that can run it with a better interface. And I'm not like uh, I'm using WebOS on my TV, man. I'm sorry, Dieter. It's I just, just not just not a wonderful Just a step experience. back, and I know we talked about leaks last week too, but just there's something so beautiful to me that this company, Apple is so centralized around this one operating system yeah. that literally everything about everything <laughs> they do is in the HomePod firmware. Like, I don't cool. know how to, like... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know a parallel for that. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, I'm going to read one more ad, then we should talk about the Essential Phone and some Pixel 2 leaks, and we're out of here. How's that? Yes. This episode of the Vergecast is brought to you by Qualcomm Snapdragon Gigabit LTE. With download speeds up to seven times faster than typical home Wi-Fi, Snapdragon Gigabit LTE can turbocharge all of your connected apps. You can stream 360-degree videos in 4K resolution with minimal buffering. You can access files in the cloud nearly as fast as you would if they were stored on your phone. And, there's, and you can download hours of movies or music in a matter of seconds. To learn more, visit snapdragon.com gigabit today. All right, Dieter, essential phone. What the hell is going on here? Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody has any idea. <laughs> well, it, um, it's there's uh, a Best Buy like, listing. First of all, Andy Rubin should not have said it'll be out by within a month. That was a huge mistake. Uh, there's a Best Buy listing. Uh, there's something to do with like Canada, like Telus or something. Uh, I don't remember. Um, I mean, here's what I can tell you: what's going on with essential? They need to release this thing because. The renders of the iPhone uh, have got a cutout. Uh, there's that that random. Was it like a sharp phone that was like party out, party in the back and uh, iPhone up front? It was like top and bottom were different, uh, but it had the cutout. Um, so in terms of like the phone itself as like a desirable object, uh, it is running out of shine very quickly, uh, just on its own merits. There's still the modularity. There's still, you know, the essential OS and the idea of connecting into this essential ecosystem that they want to build. Uh, but in order to like kickstart all that, they want to start with the phone, and uh, they need to release it. They they just really do. That's that's where I that's mean, where we're at. Is beating the iPhone by like a month or two a good goal, anyways? That's I guess a good question. Uh, it's not necessarily a great goal, um, but I don't know. If they want to sell this thing in any numbers, uh, they they would have had a better shot of doing it a month ago than they do a month from now. I'll tell you that. Um, I do. I am excited to try it. I do think it is a very good-looking phone, hmm. uh, but it's also not hard to make a good-looking phone. And the things that make the phone stand out are also... Um, no longer unique. Like when everybody first saw the Cyclops screen or whatever we're gonna end up calling that thing, everyone's like, oh my God, it's got a cutout on the screen. That's incredible. And it's very quickly becoming like par for the course. <laughs> um, so yeah, like they, they just need to release it. And again, like Essential wants us to judge this phone not as just yet another Android phone, but as like a shining example of like good quality hardware and software that will convince us to, you know, buy into the essential home later and their whole system for an ecosystem. 
Um, the other thing that's going on with Essential is they just got a big investment, and one of those investors was the Alexa Fund, yeah. which, so far as I know, has exclusively put money into companies that use Alexa. Uh, I don't think we should read too much into that with regard to the phone and or its delay. To me, that is, uh, Andy Rubin has said he wants the Essential Home, and I guess maybe the phone, who knows, to support multiple uh, intelligent assistants, and Alexa is just one of them. So there you go. I have to think on some level that they just, they're in that office uh, in Palo Alto and they're like, yeah, we'll get the phone out. We're really, con- we're really focused on this idea of ambient computing that's like next generation, post mobile, like they're gonna, you know, build some solution that's, if they're, if they're looking at a future beyond the glass rectangle, um, then they can't, I think, be truly expecting to catch up to some of the hardware makers at this point in the mobile game. And so, like, what's the difference of four weeks? So this isn't like their, this isn't one plus for them. This isn't their whole idea. This is just a thing no, that they kind of is... have to do along the way. Right, exactly. Um, but it's a better look if they sell, if it sells well than if it doesn't. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, don't get me wrong, even if it comes out in, I don't know, October or whatever, the phone still deserves some cachet. It's got the ceramic and it's got the cutout and it it has zero branding on the thing. And so, uh, you know, if you were to array a lineup of a bunch of Android phones in front of me and say, which one looks the, you know, the best or which one would you want knowing nothing about, you know, the insides or its ecosystem or whatever, it would have a real shot at, uh, at being the one that, you know, I would point at. Uh, especially since the small Google Pixel, according to leaks, looks pretty dopey. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of coming out in October... I'm sorry, it super does, right? <laughs> uh, speaking of coming out in October, this leads us into the last thing. So Pixel leaks are happening. That appears to be yeah. October-ish. Can it go up against yeah. a Pixel? Uh, I'm assuming. I'm assuming they're both going to have the same processor, the same specs. Like specs aren't a huge differentiator at this scale, at this like high price point. Um, I don't know. I mean, we'll see if Google's got some surprise extra features in Android up its sleeve that the Pixel will get uniquely. Uh, there's that. Uh, like, um, probably like a Pixel... modular 360 camera. Yeah. Right. How salty must XL Andy Rubin be to put out a stock Android phone against Google after he basically right? couldn't make that happen at Google? that's gotta suck for him all right i mean he wants google to buy him right no i mean he doesn't i know he doesn't like they're building a company to like not make that happen but it's like seriously (sighs) yeah i think he wants to run a big tech company that's what he said let me put it this way would you rather have rick osterloh in charge of google's hardware efforts or andy rubin rick osterloh i've seen andy rubin's hardware ideas it looked like the nexus (laughs) fucking q (laughs) (laughs) like google's hardware is so much better now than it was under ruben i love experience i'll give you that Um, i take it all back and even when ruben Uh, was in charge of hardware rick osterler was in charge of hardware at motorola and they made the droid which is the only reason android's successful well they made like the moto e and the moto g you know things that made moto cool again right okay wait wasn't rick osterler moto for the droid that was his. That was his phone. So. Yeah, yeah. Um. So like, he's if definitely there for the G. Andy Rubin going up against Rick Osterloh with Android phones. There's a history here. Like, yeah. sorry. 
I'm just letting out all my tension from earlier on Andy Rubin and Android phones. Let's invite them to a podcast, the two of them, sometime. Oh my god, that would be incredible. It just that would be really fun. It would just be uh, like an hour of, of tense silence, and you would just, you would just have to interpret the silence as being rather, relatively tense. We like the we well. we need a we need a new podcast app that uh, translates glares into audio <laughs> just like, like stone stone face silence yeah, we've got some great musicians like on staff we could get like miles yeah. to improvise something on the keyboard like yeah. just basically synths just one right. of those endless rising tones yeah and that's Andy Rubin yeah. and and mine would be like uncomfortable podcast. shifting like what is what is the sound of uncomfortable shifting yeah. oh you know you need you need a podcast player that does sentiment analysis and then changes the color of the screen uh, like this podcast is like red right now and then it like shifts back to a very calming blue I think most of this podcast would mostly be orange. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't know. You just you just take that into your heart, whatever that means to you. I'm gonna go with chartreuse. Wait, I have a question. It's like a shirt that says email about Pixel. Yeah. I have what? a question about Pixel. All right. So the original Pixel got a $200 discount. Now that the launch of the next one is imminent, do we know when it's going to ship by? Nope. So is it worth it right now to buy a $200 reduced a Pixel reduced $200 in price? Nope. That's still, if you if you might have to wait several weeks. Nope. Don't buy it. Don't buy a Pixel right now. There don't buy know. an iPhone. I just don't buy a Pixel. All of your questions. You're welcome. By the way, I put my SIM well, in the I mean, iPhone. I just asked the question in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> your broken <laughs> iPhone? Yeah, I picked the iPhone Seven Plus. I didn't want to. Yeah. I really I didn't want to, but I so I, you I, went to the I, Seven I, Plus. I got to, I got I as far as opening the screen where you turn off iMessage, and I was just like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not doing this. Do Two phone life, man. I, I'm carrying them both around. I don't know what for. They're basically the, the same phone. The front. It's not like the, yeah. the the you know like I'm doing the camera head to head. It's pretty fun. Yeah. But yeah. other than that, like one of them isn't giving me more than the other. A year from now, you're going to so wonder different. how on earth you lived with such crazy big slabs. Like both of those phones. Yeah. Feel like the Nexus 6P to me now, having used the Galaxy S8 and then the S8 Plus. Like. It is ridiculous that we ever allowed ourselves to use phones that were just that massively large relative to the, the screen. Like, you can have a big screen and not a giant phone. <coughs> right. Yeah. Um, Eli, maybe the solve is for everyone to get an iPad. Maybe that's Apple's grand plan with the iPad. They know when everyone moves to Android phones, but they want to carry something else. Yeah. And they're like, I'm going to buy a $329 iPad. That's a move. I will say that people just randomly come up to me now and tell me they bought iPhone 6S's. Because they wanted a headphone jack, it's just like people, just people. I'm like, thank you for this information. I will add it to my extensive database. Paul's got a dongle. I got a new dongle. Oh, that's a really fancy dongle. It's okay, a we dongle. gotta wrap this up because these two gotta go. It's a real. It's a nice. Paul does a segment though. It's a nice dongle. Every week we never forget about it. Yeah. Oh yeah, do your segment. It's called Froyo Pods. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> go ahead. That's basically the whole thing. I mean, you got the gist, right? There's a curing for Froyo. Froyo pods. Froyo yeah. pods. Yeah, it's a curing for. Yeah, thank you, Neil. Curing I'm with for, you. For Froyo, you get the 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 pod. That's it's uh, the yogurt-ish type stuff, and then you add the milk, and then it makes it cold in like 90 seconds somehow. But apparently, the whole process takes like 10 minutes, and then you have frozen yogurt. So you start with a proprietary pod, add your own milk, and then you end up with frozen yogurt out of a $300 machine that is enormous. And yeah. Yeah. That's, aren't you, aren't you, it's called Ashley, the whim. Aren't you and Ashley working on a whole 
what of pods. Yeah, thanks for blowing up my spot. That's what um, I do on the show. That's how I get people to actually. Publish. I'm trying to do basically, you know, like are we are we internet? Like I don't know. There's different, uh, like you know those single serving status pages that you go to, like uh, down for everyone, just me, or yeah. that kind of stuff. But for pods, because basically <laughs> what's happened is almost all of these companies, most of the pods were announced on Kickstarter and like haven't really even shipped. Um, and then, like, you have, like, a Juicero that shipped, but it's kind of failing. Um, uh, there was, like, a, a soda pod type thing that was different than Soda Stream that kind of failed. So, they're basically, other than Keurig for coffee, there's very few successful pods out in the market. I just want to kind of keep a, 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 little, a little tracker for them. Yeah, pod tracker. Yeah, pod tracker. Something like Dot that. biz. Yeah, we're working on the domain name. Let me know. I, I, I kind of want to call it... Where are them pods at, though? Okay, we're done with this show. <laughs> it's, come to its, it's come to its logical conclusion. Uh, let's just start with the plug. Lauren, thank you so much for being on the show today. Lauren hosts Too Embarrassed to Ask, which we have leaned on heavily for the entire top of the show. Tell us about your show a little bit. I'm really excited because this week we talked to the CEO of Impossible Burger, or excuse me, Impossible Foods, oh, which yeah. makes the Impossible Burger. His name is Pat Brown. And uh, we tried the burgers on the show, so you get to hear us eating burgers, which is just the best part, if you ask me. Um, but no, it's a show that we do every Friday. I do it with Kara Swisher of Recode. And we basically you know, choose a topic, either because we think it's a pressing topic or because people have sent us a lot of questions about it. And we read your questions on the air, and we bring someone in who can answer them. And it's a really fun show, in my personal opinion. So check it out when you get a chance. Last week, we also talked to the CEO of Eero, Nick Weaver, about... Um, Improving your Wi-Fi at home. So if you're interested in that, check that one out. Yeah. Uh, Kara also hosts uh, Recode Decode, which is great. And Peter Kafka hosts Recode Media, which is um, Media Nerds. It's like my fave. Um, all those on, on uh, iTunes. We are going to – so go rate, download, listen to everything. They're all great. Uh, we're going to be launching some new shows soon. I'm going to tease a concept for one of our shows. It's coming. It's first going to come as segments on the Vergecast. Get ready for this. It's called Why'd You Push That Button? Whoa. I'm ready. I'm super excited about it. Uh, <laughs> that's the name I'm using. I don't know if the people hosting the show are super in love with it, so we'll see. But that's my concept. I think it's going to be good. Look out for some segments of that coming soon. We're going to do some short segments on the on the Vergecast, and we're going to roll it out into its own show. It's like that's a strategy. Um, you can follow us all on Twitter. Paul is Future Paul. Dieter's Backlon. Lauren's Lauren Good. I'm Reckless. Give us your feedback. And I just want to thank everybody who stuck, who like listened to this whole show. That story is really important. That Google memo story, that diversity story. We're going to be on it. It's not going away. It's, it's, I think it's so, so important for us to cover, for the industry to grapple with, for us all to think about. I think a lot of people listen to the show are building companies or thinking about building companies or aspire to build a company. Think about that stuff first. It should be the, one of the first things you think about right alongside your product. So just keep looking at that stuff. Keep paying attention to it. It's, it's just so, so important. And that, I think, is it. That's our whole show. Rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs>